It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling Gulf Coast is the inspirational voice of Gulf Coast fishing and conservation. Hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist, conservationist, and flounder revolutionary, Chester Moore. Be ready for a relentless pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fishing adventure. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. This is Chester Moore, and I've really been looking forward to this one. Um, over the years, and I've thought about people who've either caught lots of big trout in Texas or have put people on a lot of big trout in Texas, the person that comes to the top of my list is my friend, Captain Bruce Schuler. For years, he owned Getaway Adventures Lodge down in beautiful Port Mansfield. Now he's out making me jealous, catching largemouth and smallmouth and stillhouse and the rivers and beautiful part of the texas hill country in that region so um to talk all things trout welcome to higher calling gulf coast bruce thank you jester i appreciate you having me on yeah i tell you what man no, your your area down there that you were famous for for fishing is such a unique area and the first time i went to your lodge i was just really impressed bruce with your knowledge of that ecosystem down there yeah, I tell you what, the lower Laguna Madre is a totally different ecosystem. People just have no idea. You know, that the lower Laguna Madre is like 550 square miles of water, and the average depth is less than two feet. Yeah. They just, people just don't understand. It's, it's such a pristine area. Such a crazy area. So what was your introduction to lower Laguna Madre? When did you first come across that? Well, Chester, I kind of got to go back to where I was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. My dad worked for the Houston Chronicle, and he and Bob Brister were best friends. Mm -hmm. And I fished I fished with Bob and my dad and a bunch of guys from the Chronicle. When I was just an infant, we always went to, back then it was just called Arroyo, Colorado. Real, uh, Arroyo City wasn't even there. Oh, and wow. we'd stay there at, at, at on the Arroyo. And back then, from Rio Hondo to the Arroyo, was a dirt road. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that was back, you know, the 50s and early 60s. And, uh, no, I've, it, that's how long I've been fishing it before. And I've got the picture. I've got one of my father. I'm standing there. I'm three and a half years old. He's got a trout that's longer than I am tall. Wow. And on the back of the, on the back of the photograph, it says 14, 14, six or something like that, 37 inches long. Back, back then, you know, we, we kill them, gut them, scale them and eat them. Yep. It would have been a state record back then, but I mean, the picture's there and people have seen it before. Yeah, because but we didn't now, get a trout that big until uh, the Bud Rowland fish in 02. That's correct. That's correct. I agree with that. Yeah, but so. I mean, I mean, I, I've been back, I went back down, oh, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago for a couple of days. And it, it's so sad to freeze what it did to that fishery. Mm -hmm. and, and not just to freeze, what's happened to that fishery in the last, 10 to 12 years with the pressure, you know, pe people don't understand with that much shallow water, those trout don't have a lot of places to hide. And it, it was really hurt. I mean, this is not going to be, Hey, let's don't catch trout discussion. But I mean, it just, I can remember back in the, in, in, in the nineties, you know, we'd go out and, you know, if we caught 25 inch trout, that was a good trout. Mm -hmm. Now they're, they're trophies and, and it's really sad, but no, I, I, I do. I guess people always ask me, you know, since I've been retired, do you miss it? And I said, 
three months out of the year, January, February, and March. <laughs> yeah. And they go, why that? I said, I want the water temperature 50. I want the air temperature 50. I want a 5 to 10 mile an hour north wind blowing with a light drizzle. And they go, why? I said, two reasons. One, the big fish are going to eat, and you don't have the people out there to bother you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that helps. You know, I was out with a friend of mine um, recently fishing, and there was a lot of bite in one of the community holes up here on Sabine. And I'm like, unless yep. unless I'm going to catch the next state record flounder right there, I'm not fishing there. Yep. I, I'm a let me get away from the crowd. Let me enjoy my time in nature, figure out the program. Yep. And, and Bruce, that's why you mentioned something, right? You said a lot of mouthful right there. You mentioned wind direction, temperature, water temperature. I think it's so much more important than, than learning hot spots for fishermen on trout or whatever to learn patterns. Chester, you're, you're 100% right. You know, after after I grew up a little bit and started chasing my wife surfing and fishing for fun, I started bass fishing because I didn't like throwing bait. So mm-hmm. I bass fished all over the country, and I, I understood structure. Yep. Well, then when I decided, I had I didn't saltwater fish for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine invited me down to Mansfield to go fishing. We went down there. This was the early 90s. Caught some really nice trout on top of it. I said, man, I could get into this. Sure. And at that time, I was in commercial construction development, just going crazy, building projects all over the country. So I told my, my wife, I said, honey, I'm gonna I'm gonna build a lodge, and we're gonna we're gonna move to Fort Mansfield. And she goes, what? I said, yeah. <laughs> she says, well, you're gonna quit your job. I said, yeah. I said, I'm not gonna die of a stroke in the corporate world just just to, just to make money. And she said, well, what do we do if it doesn't work? I said, we'll have the nicest house on the harbor, and I'll, I'll go back into construction. There you go. There <laughs> but, you go. But, but I was, uh, my wife and I, we were really blessed with our, with our operation. We were highly successful. But the one thing that I did do when I first moved down there in the 90s, uh, not you know, being structure-oriented from bass fishing, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about it. Bob Houston, Red Bandana, kind of adopted me and said, Bruce, you need to fish these areas. I said, well, Bob, why? He said, well, there's grass beds here and we catch good fish. Well, my neighbor that lived across the street from us for a long time, Ted Springer, had retired from Anheuser-Busch and was going to guide out of Tiki. Well, he came down and fished while we were staying at the, ho- at the hotel. He, he called his wife. He said, Ann, put the house for sale. We're going to move to Mansfield. <laughs> so he moved down. So the first year we were there, you know, we didn't have a lot of business. So I told Ted, I said, I'm going to learn this thing. He said, what do you want to do? I said, let's let's take and do some wading barefooted. He goes, okay. Because, see, people don't understand. The Lower Laguna Madre out of Mansfield, the place, only place that really has a lot of oysters yeah. is around the East Cut. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's in a hypersaline lagoon. Yep. So one summer, the first summer we were down there, he and I, on our off days, would pick an area from the, the pier north of Mansfield. And we'd wait a quarter of a mile or a half a mile of that barefooted, just walking around, feeling what was on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And over the summer, we waited from there all the way to Gladys's Hole, 18 miles. Wow. But it took a whole summer and made notes. Well, then the next summer, we said, let's look at the east side. Well, after about two weeks of waiting the east side, he gets popped between the toes by stingery. Mm. <laughs> that'll, that'll cure that the, the, uh, the bootless waiting. <laughs> that's exactly right. It, it cured it. So, so that I have to say that gave me more knowledge about what I was fishing than anything because we found areas with just a mud hole, 
different types of grasses, mm-hmm. sand, sand bars, gravel, and things like that. And it really paid dividends later on because we found areas that we'd be waiting and there'd be a, an area 100 yards long, 50 yards wide that was nothing but poof mud surrounded by hard sand and grass. Those were my prime wintertime spots. We'd hit a spot like that in the wintertime, and I might wade 50 yards all day long. But that's where we caught our big fish. Yep. Just learning the structure. And, you know, the single biggest thing, a lot of people when that way first come wade, you know, come fishing with me, first thing I know is they get out of the boat, boom, they'll cover 300 yards in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'd be behind them catching fish. I said, guys, slow down. Mm-hmm. And they go, fine. I said, you got two things going for you. You got your body as a depth finder and your feet are feelers. I said, don't walk in a straight line. I said, if you're walking and I'm waiting along and all of a sudden you're in grass and then all of a sudden you get sand, put one foot on the grass, one on the sand and follow the edge of that sand. You may wait 20 feet straight ahead in the sand and grass, go to the right, go to the right and follow the edges. I said, that's how you're going to find the bigger trout. And why do you think that is, Bruce, that those fish, I've noticed that bigger trout and also bigger flounder, they tend to like those transition zones. Exactly right. Well, it's an edge. you got to understand, like trout as well as flounder, they're ambush feeders. Yep. They're just like us old fat guys. Mm. If they don't have to to chase, they don't want to do that. They they want to sit high in the shadows and jump out and grab the bait or let the bait come to them. Yep. And people just, I mean, people walk through more fish than they catch Yeah, because they, they fish too fast. And just like your body, it's a depth finder. We're fishing the spoil along the intercoastal. If, say, the intercoastal was on our left and the spoil was on our right, we're catching fish waist deep. We'd be waiting along, and all of a sudden we'd step off in an area and go up chest deep. I'd say, stop, guys, let's go to the right. Why? Because I said, it gets shallow there. Let's We're catching those fish waist deep. Let's follow the contour of the bottom and use our body like a depth finder. Mm-hmm. If you're catching it waist deep, don't wait out there chest deep or, or knee deep. Stay in that in that productive zone. And you know that was just some of the stuff that over the years that, that you know myself I used to, to help produce the better catches for for myself and my clients. You know, and that's an incredible thing to look at taking that methodical approach because I know for sure. Uh, especially if you're, if you're like you and I, like I grew up fishing all kinds of stuff, but I was always bass fishing. So I'm yep. used to covering lots of water with a spinner bait growing up before I learned the intricacies yep. of, of slowing down with a, a slower bait. And you kind of look at eliminating shoreline, but you can eliminate shoreline and eliminate areas and do it slower sometimes because when you're looking for that bigger trout, like you said, that fish is typically not always going to be as aggressive you know, it's going to go after maybe two croaker or mullet a day, big ones, instead of going after right. 50 tr- little shrimp a day, something like that. You're, you're 100% right, because I tell people, I said, look, trout, you know, are going to chase croakers, mullet, and pickies. When they get to be 16 to 18 inches long, they're just like we are. They're lazy. Why would you want to swim nine miles to catch a half a pound of shrimp where you could stay in one spot and eat a half pound mullet? Yep. So... That was part of my education with a lot of my classes is just slow down and fish slow. And, you know, back then, everybody was throwing cro- cor- cor- corkies, and I liked them. But mm-hmm. my, and, and if I had to go catch a big trout in the wintertime now, I'd go back to the old Catch 2000. That's what I threw. And what people didn't understand, mm-hmm. the, the lower Laguna Madre being a hypersaline 
lagoon, you know, with high salt content in the water, you take a catch 2000 or some of those suspending baits out of the box and they float. Yep. So I started, I started experimenting. I take real fine lead wire and wrap around the shank of hook to get them to, to, to sink a little slower, or a little faster. Mm-hmm. And then I finally ended up changing the hooks out, not in size, but in, in the strength of the hook for a heavier weight so that I could throw it, catch 2000 out, let it settle down about two foot, just twitch it. Feel just about two turns, twitch it. And, <laughs> I caught more big fish with the bait almost sitting still than I was working it real fast. Higher Calling is brought to you by Texas Fishing Game Magazine, our official sponsor. You can check the online edition out at fishgame.com and also subscribe to their e-newsletter. And if you'd like to meet a personally subscribe you to that newsletter because I actually can do that. You can email me at chester at chestermore.com. Fishgame.com is not only wildlife and fisheries in Texas, but we cover things going on nationwide. You definitely subscribe to the newsletter. Three updates a week, killer, killer stuff put together by yours truly. Once again, Higher Calling is sponsored by Texas Fishing Game Magazine at fishgame.com. Yeah, and that's really interesting uh, of, of the buoyancy issue down there in Lower Laguna Madre. You know, someone coming down there not understanding that uh, would not have that understanding of being able to tweak that lure a little bit to make that difference yep. in the bite. And I think that's fascinating. Yep. And one of the things that the advantage of a play or can be a disadvantage uh, sometimes is the visibility, being able to actually see some of the fish that you're throwing at at times. Um, and yep. when, when you've been able to observe some of the strikes, the strikes you have been able to observe on some of the bigger fish you caught. Are there any interesting notes that you've seen like, oh, man, that's why this happens when I miss the fish, or I should always do it this way because the trout approaches this way. You ever had that kind of experience? Yeah, exactly so. And, and like, especially in the wintertime when the water was cold and, and fishing super slow, yep. like a catch 2000, I'd be working it, and I and all of a sudden it wouldn't. You'd never feel a, a peck. All of a sudden, I call it a molasses bite. Uh-huh. Often it just felt like I was reeling through thick water. Yeah. It, it, it took a while, but, you know, I had a whole clientele of people that only fished with me January, February, March. Mm-hmm. And after they learned it, they started catching those big fish. So we're working that catch 2000 or spinning bait real slow. When you felt that molasses, set the hook. Worst thing can happen, you're shooting a blank, but every now and then one's going to be a live round. Yep. And, I caught a lot of, of really big fish doing that by just feeling that that subtle bite. And sometimes, and then the other thing that I always did, unless the wind was howling, I always fished into the wind. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that is with the wind blowing, that forms a small current. Most of your bait fish are going to follow that current where the trout are going to be head into the current looking for the bait to come mm-hmm. to them. Looking for the bait fish. Have you ever fished a windward shoreline where, like, you know, bait fish are pinned against the shoreline and you come oh, in yeah. from the backside and work that? Yeah, very much so. And and there's something else I learned on fishing shorelines like that. It, and it's any bay system. You you follow the shoreline, and as you're running, all of a sudden you'll see shorelines that are like a little beach, kind of kind of a gradual slope all the way up mm-hmm. the water. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you'll see a stretch maybe 50 yards that's undercut like a cliff. Well, what I told people, I said, that is deep water coming close to the bank. Well, how do you know that? Because I said, because I said, because the wave action mm. would erode the beachfront. So that's how I found if I went to a strange area, 
if I found if I was running down a say a, a two mile beach at line of, of a bank and it's all shallow and all of a sudden I see a stretch about fifty yards that's undercut along the edge, I immediately stop and start fishing that because that's the closest deep water comes to the shoreline. Man, this is worth the price of admission, that tip alone for listening to this podcast. You're getting some great stuff from Bruce Schuler. Um, you know, and what's really interesting about um, patting yourself kind of like a bass fisherman does. I mean, honestly, most of my flounder stuff and trout stuff I do, I learned from either experience or I brought over from bass and crappie fishing. You know, different yep. approaches to fishing. It's more of a systematic approach, I think, sometimes, you know. And yeah, when, exactly you're, right. when you're mentioning these contours and the shorelines and you're mentioning like where the wave action is a, is a little bit deeper. What about this is something that's intriguing because trout are such a, a visual predator, you know. Um, yep. it, it, let's, let's talk about water clarity. I mean, is there water clarity when it's, I mean, too murky to catch trout? I mean, what, what are some of the variances you find in water clarity that make a difference? Now, if, if the water's totally milked out, by, by I mean milked out where you can't see an inch or two inches below it, mm-hmm. I'm going to fish something with a little noise. Yeah. Now, one thing that I did, and, and, and most of the guys that work with me did, and people laugh at me, well, that's going to hurt your fishing, but it helps. All my little chick has like one-eighth, a quarter ounce. Mm-hmm. I put a tiny split ring on it, with a tiny swivel, okay. it served two purposes. It would stop any line twist if your bait starts spinning, uh-huh. but it added noise. Yeah, oh, wow. It's a very subtle tick, tick, tick. Yep. And, and I'd have guys come fish with me. They never fish with horses. You're crazy doing that. That's going to spook all those trout away. I said, okay, you throw your jigs the way you want, and I'll throw mine. <laughs> oh, that's But, that... I mean, those I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that I could have used that last night. I went out to the Walter Humphrey Pier for a little bit and uh, total milk chocolate, you know, a um, yep. couple of little trout out there. But um, it's sometimes real challenging, you know, like that. And then, you know, when you're going to yep. sur- survey an area and you got kind of that mid-range, let's say you got where it's not milk chocolate but it's stained water, do you have any differences yep. in maybe colors of jigs or lures that you use? Well, here's where I go against the grain with a lot of people. If the water's muddy, I throw a darker bait. Yep. And people go, no, you need to throw chartreuse or something like that that's bright. I mm-hmm. said, no, they're going to pick up the shadow the before shadow. they will. Yep. But, but you know, I, I wasn't going to argue with anybody, but I mean, <laughs> there was there was some people, you know, pretty, say, well, you're pretty unorthodox. I said, well, anytime you want to compare pictures of big trout, I'll be happy to sit down with <laughs> The proof's and, in the pudding, and, man, you know. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's kind of like the same thing. If you got, if you talk to Jay Watkins, I guarantee you half the stuff I said, he'd do the same thing. Yeah. And Jay's, Jay's always been kind of my idol. And Jay but, is uh, a, an amazing yeah. fisherman and one of those methodical yep. guys that breaks it down. You can watch some yep. instructional videos. He's breaking the base system down like he's reading a manual. You know, it's like that's uh, right. understanding and unlocking the base system. That's why I'm asking some of these little subtle questions because I, I know how you think as a fisherman – and I love to expand people's offer because you and I have been blessed to spend more, t- especially more time in the woods and in the water than a lot of people because of our profession the last couple of decades. Um, most That's people, exactly ju- right. most people just get out maybe on a weekend a few times a year, and we want them to be able to that time they have to catch that dream fish or or have that fun opportunity. And that's why I love like that the, the idea of the silhouette. You know, um, I think on top waters, for example, I want to see what you think that sometimes because of that contrast line of 
colors. You can have one with a black back and a white belly or a white belly and a black back, and sometimes the back makes yeah. a difference just because there's enough, of that, there's enough of that hit in the water to where it creates a contrast yeah. line those fish pick out. Yeah, same thing. Like, you know, the LSU colors, mm-hmm. uh, also the roach colors, those were all dirty water colors. Yep. But, you know, fishing the lower Laguna Madre, we were blessed with 90% of the time really pristine water. Sure. And there's, there's to me, you know, if, if it wasn't for, for looking for big trout, I'd be throwing top water 100% of the time because I enjoyed watching them blow up on it. Oh, there's but no also, question. The, the one thing that if anybody is just getting into it, if they would just learn two things, one, slow down. Mm, slow down. And watch what happens. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to what's going on around you. In other words, if, if the birds are diving or there's shorebirds on the bank or you see mullet flicking, pay attention. And, and like I said, 90% of the people that first time fish with me, it, it took a half a day for them to understand that you don't get in the, if you're waiting, get in the boat and take off and walk two miles. I mean, there's times we'd fish, we wouldn't cover 300 yards all day long. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and there is a difference there, Bruce, between what you're trying to accomplish and looking for those really quality trout and going out and catching yep. trout. You got to separate the mentality. If, if, if I was just going out to catch a bunch of fish, all I'd do is I'd look for slicks and bait. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, and if you're not familiar with the, with the body of water, just look. Just look at what you can see. Look at depth. And I'd say 85% of the big trout I caught was in less than waist deep. Wow. Wow. That is an impressive statistic there. Now you mentioned like you, know, you mentioned slicks, you mentioned bait flicking. Something I ask everyone on any of the trout shows that I do: Is there a particular sign that no matter when you see this, hear this, sense or smell this, that you go, "There is a big trout somewhere here," and you stop and fish and grind it out? Okay, well I've always been at a disadvantage. I don't have a sense of smell, well, and I always envied these guys that could smell the watermelon, but I don't have a sense of smell. I was born without one. Yeah. But if, if, if anything, if you're fishing and you get it and all of a sudden you catch two or three upper size red in the wintertime, mm-hmm. you better stop right there because there's going to be a big trout in that group. Okay. People don't realize that but those big trout will get in with those big reds. Man, that's a great tip. And uh, yeah, and you realize that time of year, you're probably not going to run into that many upper size reds in that shallower water. That's right. I mean, when I say upper size, I'm saying 28, 29, not, yeah. not, not any of these bulls yeah, not bull that are 40 reds. or 50. Sure, but like your upper size slot reds and stuff like that. So that being a sign, that's a great thing right there. So the, the redfish can be a harbinger of uh, finding trout. There was a guy that told me years ago when he saw, he would see trout and alligator garfish together in the canals on the Louisiana side of Sabine Lake. And, and I've actually seen that area down there. And um, they would be in the same canals when he would see the big gar in the winter because gar are very lethargic in the winter. Um, do yep. ver- very little feeding. They lay up. And uh, for some reason, there was they were in the same kind of canal systems. He said he would see the big gar because they had to come up and breathe or even see when the water got cleared up, he would see big trout. So yep. I'm, I'm always intrigued. M- one of my things is this, and it, it's uh, kind of subjective, but – if I'm out fishing and I hear a slurp instead of a splash, oh yeah, I tend to go. That's a bigger trout, you know. Uh, you better know it. I agree. Yeah, that's that's my little thing right there. But you know, it's it's so fascinating that we can sit here 
and have such enthusiasm after doing what we've done so long of these wonderful pursuit of these incredible fish. And um, but we got to look at the ecosystem here, Lower Laguna Madre. Just been through a really intense situation, and there's a lot of things we can talk about, catch and release, and different things like that. But one of the things that really is disturb- disturbing me coastwide, and I really want to pick your brain on it, is some of the development and the dredging. And a lot of these yep. big projects that are coming on that in one swoop could change the entire ecosystem. I agree with that. I mean, when I first started fishing Lower Laguna Madre as a guide, it, it was unbelievable the amount of grass. Mm-hmm. And then we had the floods. I don't remember. It must have been 2002 or three. Mm-hmm. We lost a lot of grass. And when I retired in 13, it was just coming back good. But also, and I don't want to get into trashing people, but a lot of this problem is people that think that because they got a scooter boat, they got to run in eight inches of water. Yep, yep. They, and and there's some some friends of mine now that started a deal called Flatsworthy. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, I've actually um, I've reran some of their press releases and stuff at Texas Fish and Game, and uh, I think yeah. that's the next level of protecting our coast is taking care of those flats. Yeah, we got to take care of the flats and. and you're not going to stop the development. You're just going to have to control it. Yep. And that's the and, key and, is fighting thing, back enough to where you get a little bit of concession. You know, it's like. Because money wins. You know, a classic example of that, my early years, I was with TA, I was one of the original founders of TABC, Texas Association of Bass Club. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I'm the only surviving one of the original group. And when, when they went in and put the grass carp in Conroe, yep. we spent a hundred and something thousand dollars fighting that only to lose. Yep, but I mean, it just—you you can't fight money, but you can do it if you do it proper. Well, th- and I think and that's that the—that's the key. And con- I was just on Chrono a couple of weeks ago, and it's—it's an interesting dichotomy because there's just only grass kind of in the north end in the, in the San Jacinto River drainage. Everything else is yep. man-made structure because the grass carp, you know. Um, and it's it's a big difference, and I'm looking right now, as at Sabine last night, looking at all the LNG plants and the dredging of the channels and where the spoils are, and it's like you're not going to fight billions of dollars, but if it's done no. right and you can get work with some of these people for good public relations for them, maybe we can lessen the damage at least. You've got to be diplomatic about it because you've got to understand that's not just, that's just not billions for corporations. That's no. for the livelihood of our country. That's it. And, that's and, it. And, but, but both can coexist. Conservation yep. and development can coexist if you just don't alienate everyone. Yep. And and that's that's one of the biggest problems. They go out and they start alienating people immediately. You don't need to do this. You don't need to build this. You need to stop. We're going to protest you. No, sit down with them, explain to them, and talk to them about the ecosystem and stuff. Because I can assure you, they don't want to trash everything no more than we do. And And you know, there's, there's there's a little cliche that I use that people at first, when they first hear it, don't understand it. And, and what it's a little little thing I say. I say today, which is what, June 15th, 16th, mm-hmm. is the least amount of fishermen that will ever fish. And people look wow. at me and say, what would you just say? I said, today, June the 16th, is the least amount of fish that will ever fish the bay. Why are you saying that? Because I said, there'll never be less fishermen today. There's going to be more fishermen tomorrow and the day after that. For sure. And and, and that's what we got to look at. I mean, back when, when, when I got my captain's license, there wasn't two, 300 guys, 200 guys on the coast. And now what is it, over 1,000? Yeah. 
and that's licensed yeah. ones. <laughs> Roger on license, I understand. Yeah, that's but licensed no, ones. That's not including all the bootleg guides going on, you know. But uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a big difference between the pressure recreationally, commercially, developmentally, and I, and I appreciate that statement of today is the, the least fishermen that will ever fish because tomorrow there's going to be more. And the good part of that is if we can turn those fishermen on to caring about the resource, there will be someone to care about the flats and the trout and the flounder and the fisheries. I was in Biscayne Bay for the first time off the coast of Miami in April and looked one direction and it looked like I was in the Caribbean, looked the other direction as a nuclear plant and a, and a uh, landfill. Um, but with yep. that around us was still this very thriving fishery where I caught a nine-pound bonefish. I mean, it was oh wow, my dream fish. A perch. Yeah, my my yeah. dream fish was a bonefish. Yeah, no, I caught it on a spinner. The biggest gonna... one I ever... Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. I caught it on a spinning rod. Yeah, spinning rod. Or a fly and, rod. No, bigger. I had I only had half a day, so I, I took a spinner rod because I wanted to catch one. <laughs> and yeah. I'm I'm going back and going to spend a couple of days trying to get one on the fly. But uh, just seeing that, and there's I'm going back to catch permit there. And you think about that, you could still make it all work if everybody kind of works together. That, you know, you're exactly right. We, it, you know, we're not going to stop development. We're not going to stop the growth of the fishery. We just got to work together. That's and, it. And I really, if we get that mindset, but you know, as well as I do, Chester, a lot of today's people, their mindset is, I want it now and I want it all. It's yep. mine. Yep. And we, we've got to change that. Yeah, it, it's it's a challenge. I think, you know, Jack Hanna, the great wildlife TV host and zoo director. Yep who unfortunately now has Alzheimer's, uh, he, did a, yep. he did a project with our Wild Wishes kids and our Wild Wishes program and our ministry and got to spend an afternoon with uh -huh. Jack Hanna, which was mind-blowing for me. And, uh, oh, uh, that, that, that had to be phenomenal. He was incredible. I thought we were going to have like a little while with the kids. He hung out with the kids for like two hours. And, and, uh, but he yep. said something. He said, Chester, he said, if you talking about wildlife and habitat, he said, if you want to change minds, you got to move the heart first. And, uh, yep, there you go. And so, you know, you getting out in the water, me getting out in the water. I just got to take my little 14 year old buddy to Broken Bow, Oklahoma. His bucket list fish was a rainbow trout. I put him on 19 of them. <laughs> and, oh, wow. Yeah, he caught 19 rainbows. Uh, he was fishing with a little spoon and I was fly fishing. I caught 12. And, um, it was amazing. But the kids fired up about things and being able to get people engaged whether they're 14 or they're 40 or they're 60 and caring about the resources yep. is important. And I, that's why it's important for me to get quality guests like yourself to share this great information. And, and Bruce, I can't thank you enough for taking time to be on the show, man. Well, I enjoyed it, Chester. Kiss that sweet daughter of yours for me. I sure will, brother. It's been said that bonefish provide us practice. Tarpon provide us excitement. Wait, wait, wait. Permit provide us humility. But what can we provide them in return for so enriching our lives? Our support for the science behind the fight. Our support for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please join us today at BTT.org. These species' well-being depends on it. You've been listening to Higher Calling Gulf Coast with award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Email him at Chester at ChesterMoore.com. Check out his wildlife writings at HigherCalling.net and find him at the Chester Moore on Instagram.